Do you want to now talk about the pillars of existentialism? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What are they? So we got isolation, responsibility, meaninglessness, and death. Are those the ones you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Those are nice ones. I like uh, all those topics. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did you read the... uh... This article, The Depressing Truth About the Human Condition by Clifford Lazarus. <laughs> That's a sick name. Oh, yeah. I had to like take a little walk after that one. <laughs> it's uh, just yeah. like, hey, the four pillars of existentialism are really hard to reckon with, especially if you're a godless human. Yeah, I think he said that. That yeah. phrase. He used yeah. the term depressive realism. It was basically just, you know, <laughs> how to reckon with the human condition if you're an atheist, if you don't believe in any higher power. Well, the planets are pretty cool. The universe <laughs> is like such a coincidence, isn't it? Like there's not, it's not an insignificant thing. So there's that. <laughs> there's some other reading that we'll talk about that... um that is a little bit more insightful, but let's talk about this. Um, so we don't have to talk about it through that lens, but the pillars of existentialism, number one being isolation. Yep. I'm just trying to move my, uh, coffee here so I don't tank my entire computer. Okay. So isolation, you said? Yeah. Isolation. The idea that, uh, that no one else really knows what our personal experience is. The idea that we are essentially alone in the universe simply by virtue of having our own thought processes, our own consciousness that no one else is privy to. As I understand it, that's kind of how isolation is defined in this context. I think it's very bleak Mm -hmm. to call it isolation. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've definitely thought uh, in depth about this before, but I've never thought of it as isolation. It is isolated to your personal experience, but it's not necessarily, doesn't have to be such a lonely thing. I think a lot of the bleakness for me with, which with each of these comes from, if there isn't inherently meaning for everything, then there must be a void where meaning was, you know? And I think that's just so much goddamn pressure to place on any human being. Like, I don't like that a lot of these pillars are not approached with a little bit of playfulness because so much of life, I mean, granted, I'm fairly depressed a lot of the time. So I struggle with these, but I always kind of start to see the light with them. Like I, I almost don't need that light at the end of the tunnel as much when I remember that, like, you can still screw around. You can be isolated and alone and still kind of think about things. They don't have to mean anything. So I don't like these pillars as be all end alls, basically. No, I don't at all. I've definitely struggled with, you know, we're artists. There's a need for expression. There is an imperative for expression uh, in order for us to feel seen and heard. And what, you know what? I heard this really. Um, uh, so the actor Jay Baruchel did an episode of You Made It Weird recently. And he was saying that, like, while he was stoned with his friends one day, they came up with this theory about how, like, art is a human imperative. Art has such a role in our history and such a role in our psyches and our collective consciousness because for years it has been the case that people participate in art and make art in order to cope with the universe. And so like this is the way in which art is universal is that it's something that is made in order for people to come to terms with their own feelings with with perhaps their own thoughts about the human condition but it has been for centuries and centuries this imperative that is taken on by people in order to cope and what are we all doing but coping yeah you know and that's that's one of the things that this guy is saying what are we all doing but coping but he's not taking into account that there are like so many human practices that we employ in order to connect with each other and in order to make sense of things. And, you know, it's not just about like our positioning within the universe and our observance of these impossibilities around us in terms of like the formation of life, stuff like that. But yeah, Jay Baruchel's theory about this is actually fascinating because it's like, it's almost a biological imperative that art exists. And the fact that it has become universal in the way that it has 
is evidence that it is a survival technique. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the cave paintings, you know? I mean, we've been doing it since before we really had a mastery of tools. So it can't even be blamed on any kind of cultural awakening or renaissance that we may have had where all of a sudden something became fashionable. It's like we've been doing this almost as a reflex since we started recording evidence that we existed. Right. And so even, you know, I think we talked last time about uh, about legacy, you know, and I would I would argue that even if art can only be viewed as a survival motif because you have to reckon with the idea of legacy after you're gone, that still fits into that category. That still helps you to cope. Even if it's just for legacy, everybody understands that. Everybody understands that, like, they want a lasting memory of them to remain, you know? And so even if that art is made by one specific person about one specific person with only their legacy in mind, it is something that, like, every human being on Earth has an understanding of why that would be a desire of theirs. And so I would, I would argue that, you know, isolation when viewed through the lens of art is really like you're you're accompanied by everyone you're accompanied by every artist even if you're not an artist because they are through a certain lens talking about everything you're thinking about i mean i think that's one of the greatest utilities of art is it's just a vehicle for empathy from generation to generation you know like it allows for these universalities to persist in spite of changing cultural contexts and even in spite of language and stuff, like the fact that, have you ever seen any of those videos of like cows dancing to um, polka music and things like that and umpa? Yeah, yeah. Like it can cross species, you know? It's, it's just, there's something about empathy to that degree that I think can only happen in art. But they, have you heard that quote? I forget who the hell said it. Um, a man dies twice, something along these lines of like a man dies twice, once at the end of his life and once the instant people stop talking about him. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I always think about that now. I heard it a couple of months ago and I just think about that every time I get caught up in my legacy. The quote, I guess, is, they say you die twice, once when you stop breathing and the second a bit later on when somebody mentions your name for the last time. Well, that makes me think of Richard Rohr, actually, who is this uh, author and spiritual teacher that I'm into. His greatest or maybe second greatest work is called Falling Upwards. It's about how you experience two halves of life. And the first half of life is about developing the ego, and the second half of life is about using your ego for good. And um, I've actually been reading a lot and, and listening a lot to um, teachers who would argue that the, the ego is meant to be incorporated into your, into your psyche in a healthy way and, and used for good. And you know, the ego kind of tells you what you thrive at. And when that becomes not only about the self, it can be used to benefit your community, the people around you. So in, in that sense, like I think that Richard Rohr would argue that you, you die twice, but it, it's uh, fuck the legacy. You only need to worry about entering into the second half of life, which is kind of a, a form of ego death. I think it requires like part of your ego to die or it requires the, maybe the id to die. I don't know. Oh, it's that fear-based ego too. You know, it's that like, it's kind of like we were talking about with school and stuff. It's like the way you are when you're young and you're forming all of these things. It's like early earth, you know, everything's volcanoes and lightning and shit all the time. But after a little while, it kind of starts to take shape. And I think that ego, if you like learn to trust it, that ego seems positive. How about responsibility? So responsibility, the idea that we have to acknowledge that what we do has consequences. And in a world where everything is random and chaotic, we essentially need to do our best to guide ourselves into good choices and into consequences that will benefit us and not harm others. So that's a lot to take in. I don't know. What <laughs> What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it, it kind of like, that's another one that I feel like gets overblown as like an, as a destination in a way. And I've heard it a lot. Uh, it gets mentioned with the idea of things happening for a reason as a way to sort of negate the importance of personal responsibility. But I think it can be a smaller force as well, an important force, but I think it can be like a smaller thing, like on a human to human level. 
We don't necessarily have to be responsible for the grand scheme of anything. You just can also not be a dick. You know, you can just get through your day and do positive things for people. You can, I think it just, it's the agency essentially to me. It's understanding that actions have reactions and that just by virtue of the fact that you're moving through this life, you're impacting it. So it's more that understanding to me, it's not a, not something you have to do. It's just respecting that you're in motion. Yeah, I, w- I would totally agree. Um, I would like to offer a small microcosm of this, which I, I think is is relevant. You know, I've put on a lot of like underground shows. And when you're in that zone where you're kind of like setting up sound systems, doing sound checks for people, booking the acts, taking on every single part of the producerial role of um, producing an event you start to learn a sense of resourcefulness. You know, you start to gain these skills as a producer and as someone who knows that like every single choice you make, every single resource you avail yourself of is going to have a consequence for better or worse. Now, sometimes in the midst of a show, the sound system blows out on you or like no one shows up or you expect it to be potluck, but no one brings food (laughs) or like, you know, any number of things can go not as planned. Any number of things can contribute to the overall energy flow in the room and it can affect everybody's experience. And as you get deeper into that responsibility, you learn how to cultivate experience a little bit better. And I think that that taken as a microcosm is like, a very good representation of what responsibility is in the context of everyday life as well. You know, it's about deliberate decision-making and, you know, it's, it's about like learning existential survival, I would say, which of these decisions would I not be happy with? Which of these decisions would cause me to suffer? And which of these decisions would I not second guess or would I be less likely to second guess? I think really the point is like, what kind of experience do I want to have and what kind of meaning do I want to assign to it? And what kind of meaning will it have to me after this? And will this decision cause me to suffer more or less? Yeah. You know, those microcosms of bigger issues like responsibility, I I think they're really, they're telling, you know, they're good ways of looking at these issues. I was thinking about it in, um, the example of like algebra, you know, how, again, like everything, a lot of people would say everything happens for a reason or some sort of deterministic worldview. And I was thinking how, like, even an equation, you know, like two plus two equals four for a reason, it just happens to be that those inputted values add up to that output value. And I was thinking that can kind of be translated into life, you know, like you can have responsibility, you can contribute to that greater picture without it having to mean anything beyond just what it means, you know? Like, it's it's a little bit ass-backwards, kind of like quasi-Zen logic, I feel like, to that one. But I think that's just something that always, um, it used to always hang me up about issues like this, like thinking about something like we're all responsible all the time. It just feels like there's a lot of pressure on that. But it's actually kind of not, you know, it's, again, it's just respecting that, like, you're in motion and you can learn from it or you can choose to ignore it or whatever you want to do, but it's just that state of being engaged. The older I get, the easier this becomes, but historically a big problem for me is acting on my own behalf. So sometimes there's even a war happening within my mind about do I have more responsibility to myself or do I have more of a responsibility for others? And am I going to be self-sacrificing in any particular moment? And how much of that self-sacrifice will only benefit my reputation or only benefit how people see me, but won't benefit me? And I think when it comes to responsibility and when it comes to decision-making, that is something that I think a lot of people probably struggle with. You know, which of these decisions is me participating in the world and the community and which of these decisions is me being self-serving and are the two mutually exclusive? And how do you construct for yourself a life and a system of consequence in which more often than not that same decision would benefit both you and the community? 
I mean, do you think there's a moral responsibility that goes along with it? Because one often gets attributed to it, but do you think that that is inherent in being responsible? Um, well, first of all, I think that morality is fairly relative. But I don't know, that gets twisted so much depending on what other people's ideologies are and what other people's beliefs are and how other people need to be fulfilled. And it also gets twisted depending on the emotional intelligence level of other people. And it becomes a little bit of an is versus ought thing too, which I guess is kind of its own. Yes. That's its own umbrella, but. Yeah, I don't know. Morality is so relative to what different people perceive to be moral. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. I'm not that well-schooled in ethics, but like I subscribe pretty heavily as kind of a default to utilitarianism. And in any given situation, if I find myself not being able to make a decision, I try to just ask myself, what would do the most good in this moment? It feels, I do the same thing. It feels very, it feels like the least involved, like the least self-involved you can be in that decision. I don't know, going for the utility of it as opposed to going for whatever moral beliefs you hold true, because those might not be reconcilable to the next person, you know? Right. But the problem is that can lead you to be self-sacrificing and that can lead you to the inability to act on your own behalf. And and that's a very serious detriment to your growth. Yeah. Do you think it is if you're aware of it? Like in the moment? I don't know. Oh, dude, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to bring this to... Um, I've been pretty depressed the last few days. I was binge-watching Hoarders <laughs> and... <laughs> And there was this one guy who's actually right down the street from you, kind of, um, in Tewksbury. But, you know, the the counselor that they brought in for that episode was telling him, you know, there's a point in which you cross a line from humility over to martyrdom. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. Can you know it to be beneficial to you? Yes, until it becomes martyrdom. And then I think we kind of lose sight of that because we get very zealous about whatever it is. But we get zealous about the fact that we're doing good and not about the fact that it is serving us, serving our growth, serving our well-being. So that, I think, is kind of the detriment in utilitarianism is that it's not always going to be beneficial to the person enacting it, just by definition. Do you think it's possible to even have a system where this is all running perfectly? In like some hypothetical world or hypothetical universe, do you think there is a philosophical system or a method of acting which is perfect in this respect? Not without widespread emotional intelligence and widespread agreement on what is ethical and what is beneficial. I even think, you know, take it down like not even worldwide, but just America we have such a such a problem agreeing on things just in America. And a lot of that is because our ideologies in America vary based on the regions that we live in. Just, you know, look at look at the South and the Confederate statues. You know, the problem with, with statues and monuments is that they preserve they don't preserve history, they preserve ideologies. They preserve legend. And so often legend is not synonymous with history. And so like you're not really learning about what actually happened, the suffering that actually took place. And then there's where those ideologies are born. You know, like it, it could be born of experience, which is born of need. And I remember hearing it talked about with the, I think it was a gas tax of some kind that was being proposed in a lot of urban settings to sort of curb pollution in cities and help uh, fund infrastructure and things like that, help basically modernize the world in a more healthy way. And a lot of the, you know, the redder places politically were rejecting this wholeheartedly and you know they're all getting slammed for being hicks and stuff and resisting change and somebody brought up that like well if you're in these areas physically you might have to drive like 75 miles to the grocery store like it's just a different world this tax is going to screw these people versus the people who can just walk down the block so there's even that where like a lot of things that can be looked at as ideologically behind the curve compared to what's the most cutting edge philosophy or what philosophy possesses the most empathy. It's like that might not apply in a utilitarian way to a lot of regions or a lot of cultures. And even just the transference of knowledge, like when statues are being demolished and stuff, it's good for the progressives and for the younger generations. But has anybody taken into account 
how to relay that knowledge to the people, you know, who erected these statues, to those generations who are still going to resist this because to them you're tearing down their heroes. They don't understand that this is humanity trying to move beyond a terrible mistake. So it's it's a very complicated thing no matter which way you cut it, I think. I think it's true of a lot of philosophies. It's that relativity kind of goes all the way down to like, do we have the ability to communicate clearly across that large of a group the need for this to happen? And if not, how in the hell are we going to make it happen? Do you think that we would if education were more standardized? Or do you think that there would always be idealistic and moral discrepancies across the board? Personally, I think it would be less severe of an issue if that were the case. I don't think it would ever be completely reconciled. But I think if education were more universal and if it were presented differently, if it were presented as like you're learning, you're participating in a greater conversation, like just for basically the joy of learning for lack of a better expression, as opposed to this is your ticket, you know, this is the ladder you have to climb and putting some of those capitalistic mindsets to something like education, I think makes it dangerous and making it over academic, I think actually makes it dangerous too, because... I don't know, I've always kind of thought that like like true progress won't really happen unless it is relatable on any level of society. Like if you can walk into a coal mining town in the middle of nowhere and explain something that was thought up in the highest echelons of an Ivy League college, you know, that's when it's successful. But until that point, you know, you can't really have any true social progress because otherwise all you're doing is widening that schism. Yeah, we definitely have... I think at, at every level, you know, we have a, a capitalistic approach to education. But even outside of that issue, I think like issues of like religion and sex education, like like I think that sex education should be universal. And I think that world religion should be universal and being taught in schools. And like I'm I'm all for like freedom of religion in schools. But once you make anything too biased toward one ideology and bias against general education and like universal education, then you're you're going to be perpetuating those idealistic discrepancies. Yeah. I think a lot of subjects should just be taught in a less dusty manner, you know? Like that I don't think these should be mutually exclusive, basically. Like you should be able to be academically competitive and race in that direction if you feel like that's where you want to go. But that shouldn't be a requisite characteristic of getting an education. Like, think about the irony of, we were just talking about ethics, and you mentioned that, like, you aren't as well-versed in the topic of ethics, but you're an ethical person. You know, there's never been a day that I've known you where I've thought, oh, Joel's fucking up ethically. Right. So in a way, you shouldn't have to be well-read on something like ethics, I think that I'm well-schooled in what my idea of being an ethical person is. I just don't have an ism to ascribe to it. No, that makes sense, yeah. But I wish they could teach things like that without any of the isms being necessary, but with them being there, basically. So you can you can learn about the topic in a more accessible way, but then if you're interested in it as a topic, you can start digging back into like the literature that preceded the present-day interpretation of it or understanding the theories that go behind it. Because so many things we learn about in any education system are universal things or at least useful things. Even something like psychology, it's like the, the principles of that are, they'd be useful to virtually anybody. But not everybody's going to want to go real deep down that rabbit hole and learn the terminology and the applications and think about the, the precedent and the experiments that have been done. You know, So it's, I don't know, I've always had kind of a tug of war with that side of academia where on one hand there's some some subjects where I enjoy that style and there's other subjects like math for example I just suck at it objectively it's not how my brain works and I always really appreciated it when I had a teacher who just kind of came in and like a listen we're gonna cut the shit and we're gonna learn this and it was like thank you now I get it you know and I don't know I just I wish education was more accessible in an identity way how did we get on to uh this. Oh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we literally started with the word responsibility. <laughs> well, great segue into meaninglessness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of the ultimate pushback against meaninglessness is all of the isms that have been imposed onto studies like literature, philosophy, psychology, all of these areas that are 
definitely human constructs and that are meant to understand ourselves better, but also are specific to academia and scholarship. Not necessarily specific to academia, but certainly specific to... I guess what I'm trying to say is that you have to have like a seriously peaked interest in order to get into these things. And in order for your interest to have been that peaked, you have to have thought about the meaning behind it. You know, you have to have recognized that this has meaning for for you, for the world. This is maybe something that was constructed in order to assign something more meaning. I feel like I'm rambling just to make a point, but <laughs> what do you think? No, I agree. I think meaninglessness is another one that's got a lot of different interpretations, just like the other two. All of these do, really. I mean, it can be taken as a state of being. It can be taken as a destination. It can be taken as a setting. And they it kind of means different things, depending on which lens you look at it through, to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, this article that we read was very atheistic in nature and and very um you know it it really celebrated the cold indifference of the universe and um that i think is something that every human contemplates at one point or another and in that sense is a a universal struggle or a universal source of suffering but also, I've kind of been always been more or less opposed to that idea because, man, that's what life is, is determining your own meaning. As humans, just the fact that we develop interests that, it, that are superfluous, that are frivolous, that have nothing to do with survival. And, and I would point to Jay Baruchel's thing again about like how there is a, a survival imperative in developing interests and things like art and stuff like that because it, it's a coping mechanism. But just in terms of that, like we all develop meaning without thinking about the fact that there is meaning behind it. So like the fact that you would profess that there is a meaninglessness to the universe, I kind of call bullshit on that because as humans, we develop interests and we start to assign meaning to our lives very organically without thinking about the fact that we need to. I feel like it's a misnomer meaninglessness or meaning often coinciding with purpose. Because that's how I first read it. Like when I just saw these pillars written down for the first time, I read meaning as, as purpose, you know. And that's one aspect of it. But it can also, I think, just be a definition. It can just be, I don't know, your ability to sort of hem in an idea or an image or a thing that you see, any sort of noun. Like, Well, yeah, but when I was saying that we all develop interests like what's unique to humans and what's unique maybe to like this period of time is that you can turn your interests into a sense of purpose you can turn your interests into a career and you know there's definitely a merit to like keeping your hobbies your hobbies but there's also something to be said for the fact that like and may, may, yeah maybe it's specific to this time but at least in the milieu in which we live there is the possibility that you can create your own meaning, create your own purpose, and design for yourself a system by which you can thrive by participating in your hobbies, by, you know, elucidating the world of your your special interests. Yeah. And I mean, then there's the whole question of does that have any bearing on the meaning of life, you know, of the meaning of the universe? Like, sometimes I think about it, it's just, it's funny that we ascribe so many aspects of of those topics like the meaning of life or the meaning of the universe or whatever you know level of hope we need like is there a heaven that kind of stuff so much of that is tethered to human emotions so that if you get depressed enough you can change your idea of what the universe means and i don't know to me that just proves we don't really know any of it at all and but I just, I find it really funny sometimes that a lot of our, what we would consider meaning is actually just sort of a manifestation of a feeling. You know, like the universe doesn't necessarily become any more or less optimistic just because I'm depressed today, but it might. I remember noticing like a few years ago that there was um, like in, in my Facebook memories, there was like something about Goodwill Hunting came up and I had just watched it and it was August. And so I was like, oh, for several years in a row now, this is the time of year that I watch this movie. 
And then it kind of tuned me into the fact that August is when I get depressed for some reason. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's just historically a very bad time of year for me. So over the past few days, I've just been like, well, this this is when this happens, and now I'm gonna watch Goodwill Hunting and cry. Yeah, but I think that's something that I always am. Like like even all throughout today, I was pretty paralytic, and I found myself thinking like, well, what media am I going to consume to go along with this, and that has kind of always been like ever since I was diagnosed with depression, like ever since I started associating music and movies and whatever forms of art with a certain state of mind, I have always assigned meaning to those things that are specific to me, but are also probably universal to other people and relatable to other people in that way. And you and I have talked a lot about like, the, the music that we listen to depending on the seasons, the music that we listen to depending on the, on the mood that we're in. And it's such a fascinating thing that like, even when you're in a crippling depression, you are able to assign meaning to art and you're able to like see, even if you can't see like it's full beauty, that's why you're listening to that music. Like you're reaching for beauty and you're reaching for understanding and empathy in the form of art. I don't know how to tie this in with a sense of purpose, but there's like so much to be said for, the fact that that art was made and the fact that there is that purpose, even if it's an unconscious purpose behind it. Well, that's where I think it ties into the survival. I mean, because those forces will kill you just as surely as any physical disease or whatever. And if nothing else, just by surviving each depression, you contribute to proof of concept that it's survivable, you know? Like there are days when that's all I have is just like, well... I didn't lose. And I think that's important in and of itself because when you're in the throes of it, it seems inevitable that you'll lose and that everyone loses. And so you, you kind of need that precedent of human experience. And a lot of times it's perpetuated through art, but you know, even it could even just be knowing somebody that survived each day of some living hell or whatever, and, or some mental disorder or physical disorder and, it's like over time, we're just gradually starting to understand the surroundings we're stuck in. Like we're starting to chart the layout of our cage. And so it might just be that you shine a light on a millimeter of that greater picture, but that's still something. That's a really good outlook on that. Yeah. Well, it just gets boring otherwise, you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah, you get depressed every day and okay. <laughs> I don't know if, if all it has to be is a little bit more fucking interesting than that helps me frame it personally, but it does not make it easier. Uh, I wanted to ask you, I think we're probably the same in this regard that like, we're the kind of people who need our professions to speak to our personal values in that, like, you know, I couldn't be a banker and be who I am. <laughs> yeah. You know, sure. <laughs> so there's like this, you know, I want to be recognized as like the scholar that I am or the artist that I am yeah. or, or whatever. So I think we'd be remiss not to address this and the, um, the sense of purpose and sense of meaning that it does need to be more than just the, the career that you have, more than just like how you make money, but it also can be that, but it should be more than that. I think I've always had this desire for my livelihood to be associated with my what I consider to be my best qualities. Well, that's what we're taught. I mean, that's like the whole paradigm that's kind of shoved down everybody's throat since, you know, kindergarten. And it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's never, what do you want to do? And it always has some sort of bearing on your financial health. Cause I mean, it's, it's rampant with musicians, especially think about the idea that like, it's, I guess it's more of a, a subtext a lot of the time, but it's definitely talked about that you're, you're almost less of a musician on some level. If you don't do it to pay your bills that's bullshit, you know, but that's how it's framed sometimes. I mean, that's how it was framed even just in my upbringing and stuff, never maliciously, but just that was always like, well, when's it going to start paying the bills? I was like, who gives a shit? It's just the experiences we all have and dives and stuff, they're sacred. And that's its own thing. I get just as much of my identity from that as I feel like a, a stockbroker gets from brokering stocks or whatever the fuck they do. And I don't know. It's just, uh, 
I think it's a scary thing. The more I realize it, the more I age and stuff, that it's there's a monetary value put on the identity. For that reason, I've always had severe doubts that I could always carry that out as a profession. And like, by no means have I ever managed to sustain a livelihood off of my art. But like, yeah, I think I think so much. Like so, so much needs to be sacrificed sometimes just to make a buck and to put food in your mouth. And that's really unfortunate. I think that's like something that all artists really kind of struggle with. And if you don't, God bless you. But there's uh, <laughs> there's like this existential crisis going on in all, a, a <laughs> lot of our minds about, <laughs> I'd really like this, this single to make some money. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> and if it does, it's going to have to be like on the merits of pop sensibilities and catchiness and uh and rhythm rather than just lyrics and i put most of my effort into lyrics yeah so and that's that's a path straight to hell in and of itself the lyrics because that's also my favorite thing about kind of music in general is i love a good lyric but it's like you know half the time to do it professionally before you're getting to a level where audiences are coming specifically to see you you can still make a shitload of money doing it but you're playing in a dive. They don't, or, you know, just a bar in general, they don't care what you're saying. I've actually done it as an experiment sometimes, just singing other things to a tune that's familiar or whatever, or just sort of screwing around a little bit. And people really don't care. And it's sad. And I think it's all gotten worse with the decentralization of a lot of art industries, you know, like it's, it seems like it, I don't know if this is true internally, but it seems like it was easier to be more of a true artist when there was a management structure around you that you were almost rebelling against publicly because their job was to keep you in the box and your job was to bust out of the box. And that friction made some really interesting records. But now you have to be the manager and the record label and the artist and the performer and the writer. It's like in the producer. It's, it's Well, and the booker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember you saying on an episode of Friday Night Folk that um, playing songs that are lyric dependent in a non-listening room environment is like the biggest kiss of death for a, a folk player, like a solo acoustic player. Because if you don't have a band behind you to be loud and grab people's attention, and what you're counting on is for the words that you've written to grab their attention, like you think that's the strongest selling point of this song, it's not going to be, and the song's not going to be sold, and it's just going to be background music, so it better be something that you can get some tips off of, you know? That's very hard. I don't want to get, dig too deep into this because I'll get cynical. <laughs> and this yeah, is probably all an episode too. Yeah, this isn't the the venue for it. <laughs> <laughs> Go listen to Friday Night we, Folk if you want to hear <laughs> me and Matt complain about this shit. <laughs> it's like tough though. There's nowhere to vent about it. I know. Except to people in like, except to you. Essentially, I don't have anyone I could vent to. I yell at my brother about it now. He's, he's the only one I see often enough to vent about it. But and he's he's gotten to a point where he knows to just receive it five minutes and then change the subject. But well, and he makes like EDM stuff, right? Kind of. It's like he makes house. I guess I don't know if there's a specific difference, but he like it's electronic music, but it's not necessarily always dance. Yeah. So he, but he's not in that lyrical realm. Yeah, he's he's interesting. He isn't, but he understands it, you know? Like, he understands okay. a good lyric. He values a good lyric. He just, he doesn't necessarily sit down and write notebooks full of lyrics. But he hears one, he's like, that's fucking good. And he and I always debate the, the whole lyricist versus writer thing that we must have talked about at some point. Of just somebody can be an excellent writer, but not a good lyricist or vice versa. Like Like Father John Misty. I think he's a really brilliant prose writer and he's a dog shit lyricist yep because <laughs> it's just they're not like lyrics are almost an instrument in and of themselves like i think f scott fitzgerald is one of the best fucking lyricists ever yeah we've talked about the, that before too like sometimes the best prose writers write in a very lyrical way so that it just like i tend not to enjoy the kind of poetry that could instead be formatted as a paragraph and it's just kind of broken up seemingly arbitrarily. Yeah. But, you know, you take someone like Fitzgerald or someone like some some of Salinger's work or like some, there are a lot of writers who can kind of pull this off and you could break up their paragraphs into arbitrary lines and it would read as really, really good poetry. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. It's like, it's just the first time I read Fitzgerald, that was such a big experience. And then the first time I was on some sort of a drive or something and I just heard it, I was listening to a book on tape of, um, I forget which book, but it was amazing to hear it spoken. Like it, it just had such a rhythm to it and had such a, everything short of a straight up melody. It just, it danced in a way that I had never heard writing move before. Christ, we could go on that one for a while. Speaking of Fitzgerald, let's talk about death. <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald, a known hypochondriac. Yeah. Um, and a, a man truly terrified of his own demise, according to legend. Uh, how to reconcile having a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, with the knowledge that even our legacies decay? I think an acceptance has to come into play, you know? It's that uh, DeMontaigne quote. Have you heard that one? Like, to philosophize is to learn how to die. Oh, yeah. I mean, that kind of sums it up for me, that it's, you know, that clock starts ticking the instant you're born. Everything starts decaying the instant it begins to exist. So my personal feeling on it is just do it with as much style as you possibly can. Yeah, I got to buy some more corduroy. <laughs> Dude, you should say that anytime anyone's like, wow, Joel, you're wearing exclusively corduroy. Just say, like, I'm learning how to die. Yeah, I feel like exactly. They'd, they'd get a real uh, different perspective every time you said that. <laughs> you know, I'll be the first to admit that this is, this is work that I have to do more of. So the nearest that I've gotten, and kind of what my present philosophy is, is what happens after my death is not of my concern. And a thought like that will inspire me to make the most of life and have the most impact that I can while alive. But there is still this existential dread of how to not exist. Uh, I think we're burdened with this idea of without consciousness, what even is the world? It's weird. I, I, like, I am in a place right now where I can talk about this, but I hadn't really prepared myself to talk about this. I don't know. I Okay, I'll say this. I don't get really... I place a lot of value in my ability to process things as an individual and not necessarily through the scopes that are set forth by certain ideologies, certain schools of thought, certain institutions, right? So try as I might, I think it's really hard for me to gain a sense of comfort through things like the religious interpretations of death. It's hard for me to try to gain wisdom from like a spiritual teacher or from any sort of ideology, any sort of dogma, because dying is a very personal thing. And it can... A, a, a lot of people, I think, do learn how to die or, or do learn to have an acceptance of death through institutions and through ideologies and through belief systems. But for me, I've always felt like it's a very personal thing to accept. And it's hard to reconcile what a convention says about it with what your anxiety says about it. And you can learn to alleviate your anxiety through a convention or institution or ideology. But it's a lot of work. And Again, I could definitely stand to do more of that work. But I think the biggest thing to reconcile has always, for me, been how do I do personal work through an institution that by definition is not personal? It's hard. I feel like that anxiety is completely founded, too. Like, it's a completely valid thing to be deeply existentially anxious about because every biological imperative that we have is to prevent us from going to this place that we're supposed to also miraculously accept you know it's like a lot of people will talk about how you're supposed to accept that you will inevitably die one day and it's a part of life and blah 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 but we still look both ways when we cross the street and things like that we still go to the doctor it's like we're still trying not to you know a full acceptance of it wouldn't be like down the road it would just be like well screw it you know i walk out of my front door this could happen at any moment 
don't need a seatbelt, you know. So it's it's an interesting kind of tug of war between those things to me. Yeah. I will offer this anecdote too. Um <laughs> I was having this debate with uh some of my family members a few summers ago and basically we were just getting a debate about like whether and when guns are necessary. Yeah. <laughs> and I've always been like why would I need a gun? <laughs> <laughs> for for what? Yeah. <laughs> Who's going to attack me? And they're going like, well, anyone. I'm like, well, but that's, no one has yet. I've been a lot of yeah. places. I've never seen anyone just wield a gun. And it yeah. sucks that that sometimes does happen, you know? But this is the way that I see it. I can either live my life in fear of death and in fear of being assaulted, or I could live my life assuming that anywhere that I go, any interaction that I have has the potential for harmony. And maybe that's kind of naive, hippie, woo-woo stuff, but like, I really believe that. I really believe that it's going to cause you less anxiety and it's going to like assist in your ability to make connections with people and to bring positivity with you if you're not constantly fearful of being attacked. Yeah. You know? Oh, for sure. I think that should theoretically go hand in hand with if I'm not afraid of dying, then I can focus on living. But I think you also have to have a, a some degree of or a significant degree of faith in the way in which you live and whether that is going to be whether that, that's going to have a lasting legacy for you or whether it's going to just like um, whether you live in a pay it forward kind of way. Yeah. And it's that's hard, too, because it's kind of. um that awareness isn't necessarily predictable. Like that's not a regular awakening from person to person to person. That's, it happens in different rates and different times for everybody. So it's like, if you had that awakening of just realizing that like you need to care about the way that you live when you're like 50 versus when you're 10 or 11, you're going to have a very different experience with it. Yeah. I think this also dovetails with responsibility though. If your conscious thoughts about death are, if I died, what will I have missed out on? Or what opportunities will I be denied? Every time that you're making a decision that has a consequence, you should assume that it will have some kind of chain reaction. And so, like, I think there's a lot of peace to be offered in the thought that, like, once you're gone from this world, are the chain reactions that you have set forth going to be emanating positivity into the world or are the chain reactions that you set forth in this world going to be emanating what your values were when you were alive and again that's going to range drastically from person to person and from region to region but i think that that's kind of how most people tend to live and how most people tend to cope with this kind of stuff it's like i want my values to to resonate and to echo into eternity, as the man says. Oh, that's true. It depends a lot on the values, too. Cause I think insecurity can really come into play with these kinds of things, too. And Do you think death is really what is driving us, then, at our core, even if we're not aware of it? I don't know. I mean, I, I know that it was driving me for a long time. I know that I was focused way too much on legacy for a long time. And you get a sense that legacy begins once you've died. I don't know. For me, I, I started like looking at certain points in my life as like, how would this play out in a documentary about my life? You know? And so like kind of focusing on like, well, after I'm gone, how are people going to talk about me? What will the talking head say? Kind of grandiose, kind of egotistical. Yeah. <laughs> but it's necessary. I mean, especially as a creative, like it's, that grandiosity is is um, imperative, I think, at least for a while, because nobody is validating that shit at all for a long time. So you have to. But I feel like it's sometimes. Um, have you ever heard of the the Satra? I think it was Satra. The idea of facticity versus transcendence. No. It's the idea that like facticity is who you are, you know, as dictated by the facts, basically, of your existence, like who you are in the moment, and transcendence is what you could potentially become and that those are two facets of your identity essentially. And they both kind of go hand in hand. And I feel like some ideas of legacy and, and some, maybe some fears around the idea of dying come with the reconciliation of those two poles. Like did they meet close enough for you to sign your name to that life basically? 
did the person you know you could have been amount to the person that you were? Because that's really all that the past tense legacy is, is just people talking about you. And they're only talking about you in terms of what you've put out there for them to take in. So if your legacy isn't what you wanted it to be, it's in a way it's that you weren't able to articulate it the way that you wanted to for any number of reasons. So your facticity does not match with your transcendence in the end. And then for other people who die, you know, in that happy, I've done everything I want to do with my life, I am who I wanted to be, they're almost more closely matched. When you looked up the human condition, did you come across this program at Emory University at all? I may have been passing. I didn't write anything down about it, but... They have, I think it might be like a law program or something like that, because it seems to focus on social rehabilitation a lot. Okay. But it's called the Mission for the Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative at Emory University. So, okay. It's an academic space within which scholars can imagine models of state responsibility that focus on the universal and constant vulnerability of human beings and their consequential and inevitable reliance on social relationships and institutions over the life course. My my interpretation of this, I think it is a model for learning about the legal system's implications on social conditions. But I thought it was a really cool, like, kind of introduction into not only the four pillars of existentialism that we've been talking about, but the fact that the human condition has so much to do with our social conditions and with the institutions through which we move and and graduate and and are sometimes in stasis for a while. Yeah, that seems like a that's a cool course or a cool. Is it a course or is it like a a full? Um, like a program. I didn't look too deeply into it. They just, they have this landing page and it was kind of hard to move beyond it. Yeah. I'm actually on it right now. Yeah. It's, I would take this in a heartbeat. It seems cool as hell. Yeah. They, they talk about, so this is a line from it. When, when they are failing individuals, those institutions and relationships should be assessed and when necessary adjusted so as to ensure a just and defensible distribution of social and economic privilege and power. So it's this it's this program, or at, le- at least they call it an initiative, so let's just say it's an initiative. But I, I think it is like a resource that the school uses seemingly for sociological or, or legal purposes uh, to kind of examine how we're brought through a lot of conventions in our life and what those conventions do to us. Uh, you know, morally and and personally, and how those even impose upon us a sense of meaning uh, or a perceived sense of meaning that we have to agree with, otherwise we're in breach, you know? Um, I like this idea of examining social institutions and examining the things that govern our lives that we may or may not be in agreement with, that we may or may not be in compliance with, and how being in non-compliance can sometimes deem us outcasts or what's the word I'm looking for? Offenders. Yeah. I mean, cause it's, it's hard. I think cause like if you don't constantly audit the social institutions that you're inhabiting, like those labels are valid because relative to the social norms, you're deviant, you know? So that there is an importance in like constantly understanding where those things stand and, what function they're serving and whether or not they're doing that successfully. I like this initiative better than even certain um, ideas of self-acceptance in, in these ways, like those types of solutions to issues of deviance, because I feel like there's so many situations where the society is just not serving the individual. It's not the individual's fault. And uh, I think about that a lot with, uh, with like schooling, you know, early on when you see kids that are being treated as fuck ups essentially, cause they're just, they're drawing all over everything and they can't sit still. But it's like, some of those kids are geniuses, you know, some of them are really, really good artists or really good writers or they're not broken. They're just going to a different beat, you know, and the institution that they are inhabiting is not serving them in any way. So I really like the idea of examining it from that other side, seeing like, have the people changed? Is this institution changing with them? Yeah, exactly. Now, like from a psychological or therapeutic point of view, we would use the word pathology to dig into this. And so often what isn't examined 
in people who are perceived to be offenders or perceived to be deviants is the pathology that led them to whatever point you're scrutinizing. That's also really important when we talk about the human condition is what have people who are perceived to be deviants done to cope with those four pillars that has then led them to this place and and in what ways have those social institutions hindered them from coping or pushed them to cope in ways that are not natural or organic to them and do not feel, fulfill their needs. And it's, I mean, it's impossible to really arrive at any substantial conclusion a lot of times beyond just what's happening in that moment because otherwise everything becomes relative and it's it's with a lot of ideas of progress really it's like there seems to be this notion that we'll arrive at it but in reality it's just keeping this shit on the rails long enough that we don't spiral off into oblivion as a species you know yeah and then we get back to that ethical question of like is there a social institution or a way of examining pathology that serves everyone is there a method that can be imposed on even just America as a whole that would fulfill everyone's needs? Personally, I don't think so. I mean, because the only things that I've ever, and I mean, I might be completely biased in this respect, but the only, I guess, like societal or political ideologies I've ever truly believed in are the ones that embrace the fallibility of human beings. Because whenever we go too far in any ideological direction and go for absolutism, like take communism, for example, like what the hell happened? You know, that took <laughs> so little time to turn into a freaking monster. And, uh, yeah. and it's happened so often and under so many different circumstances. And it's, I don't know, it's always when you allow a little bit of give or take or a little bit of slack just to kind of basically allow for screw ups, allow for contingencies, allow for differing ideolo ideologies, Jesus Christ, to, uh, to get in there. And then, you're basically just not claiming to know what you don't know. Yeah. I think that that's something that we need to look into as a society that depends so much on institutional structure is what programs can we put into place? What pro what um, practices can we enact to make sure that everyone is taken care of in some way or another? Let's start with academia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think within the realm of education, that's that's really, really important. And I think that we're closer now, maybe, than we, than we were decades ago. But I think there are so many different kinds of learners. And, you know, I've said before that, like, one of the great things about everyone remote learning right now due to the pandemic, schools are starting to opening back, back up, which is uh, not great. But just like the end of the of last school year, you know, when people were remote learning mm. and one of the great benefits that can come of that is that suddenly people are able to take an audit of what kind of learner they are. Are they missing the classroom or are they now suddenly glad to be kind of more on their own time uh, in their own environment, which might be more comfortable to them? Yeah. Are they not being distracted by the classroom? There are all sorts of people. And so like, ideally we would be constructing a society that suits everybody's different learning styles and is able to offer fulfillment to every kind of meaning or purpose that people assign to their life. It's tough. And like what we need to be doing more of is examining pathologies and how social institutions can be to people's detriment sometimes, or they can help them to thrive. And there has to be some kind of middle ground. And kind of understanding their like under, maybe their unintended results some of these social institutions. I, th I find that to be one of the most fascinating aspects of the remote learning that's happening right now is there's never been a more clear line between the function of a school as a learning tool and the function of a school as any number of things from childcare to just teaching you how to function in an institution or a social set or anything. I mean, cause I'm, you know, I'm seeing like my mom being a teacher and stuff. I'm seeing a lot of this, debate happened through the town meetings and stuff like that. And it's really just fascinating because you see a lot of the parents who are concerned that like they have to go to work and what the hell are they going to do? So to them, school is really just a place that the kid goes to presumably get better. To a lot of kids, it's just they need the companionship and the surroundings of all their peers to like kind of grow as a person. To other people, it's about the knowledge that they're they're learning. So it's we're starting to see too like just that school for instance isn't only 
serving the function that it was intended to. If anything, that's belittled by all the other ones at this point. Same kind of goes for the police and a lot of other institutions that are being called into question. So, I mean, yeah, I like when these things are audited, when they're just considered in a, in a curious way, in a thoughtful way, different perspectives are taken into account. And, you know, just see how the hell we're doing as a people. I think that's crucial. And that's our show. We'll be back in two weeks with an episode about self-therapy, and we'll be talking about the benefits of naming conditions and some coping mechanisms that we found helpful when dealing with depression and anxiety. And in the meantime, the first episode of Black Market Book Club will be airing next week. Matt and I will be talking about Albert Camus' The Plague, which we both read during quarantine, and which we did find kind of helped us evaluate the more emotional side of this pandemic. So we hope you tune in for that as well. Black Market Therapy is a Dead and Mellow production, and for more information, you can find us on social media to keep up to date with what's going on. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.